Uh, well, if you're here with us today and this is your first time, we are in the middle of a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians, as Dan just read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The major theme of the book of 1 Thessalonians is this hope that Jesus Christ is going to return someday. But I think um, one of the reasons why that was a real hope for the Thessalonians is because of the passage that Dan just read. And so let's, uh, let's pray here and ask that God would bless our time together and that we too, like the Thessalonians, would receive the word of God for what it really is, the word of God. Uh, Father, we are praying that today, as we study the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that we would hear your words and that we would value them like the treasure that they are. Father, we want more than anything to hear from you today. We know that uh, everything else that may happen today, all of the things that may happen, whether it's the Super Bowl or something else, we know that there are all other kinds of things we could be thinking about. But ultimately, for this next however long we're together, we pray that we'd be thinking about one thing, and that's hearing from you. Because we know that ultimately life is found in your words. And so we're praying that today you would speak so that we could hear. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as the story goes, German immigrant Jacob Waltz found the infamous gold mine in the Superstition Mountains of Arizona sometime around 1870. There's quite a bit of dispute as to how Waltz found the gold mine. In fact, there are some who even dispute if he even did find a gold mine, but there's definitely dispute as to how he found the gold mine. But what is known, at least according to the story, is that Jacob Waltz was filthy rich, and it seemed that he had an unending supply of gold. Wherever he went, he would pay with gold. And so he was known for being rich, but he was also known for being super secretive. On a couple of occasions, people attempted to follow him to this hidden gold mine, and on both occasions, he shot them dead on the spot. When Jacob Waltz died in 1891, the secret of the, whole, the hidden gold mine died with him. In the years that followed, the gold mine would come to be known simply as the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. Now, this is an aside here. He was a German immigrant, but for some reason he was nicknamed the Dutchman. That's why it's called the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. But there was this gold mine, and apparently, according to treasure hunting history, and I'm no treasure hunting buff, but according to treasure hunting history, this is one of the biggest mysteries in American treasure hunting history. What happened to this gold mine? Over the years, it's captivated the imagination of countless men and women who have been looking for the gold mine of Jacob Waltz. In fact, from the moment that he died in 1891 up until even now in 2014, there are still people searching for this infamous gold mine, the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. One of those people who was captivated by the story was a man named Jesse Capen. Jesse Capen was a 35-year-old hotel bellhop from Denver, Colorado, and he became obsessed with the story of the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. He owned over 100 books and maps dedicated to the pursuit of finding where this gold mine was, and it seems that he made it his life mission to find the lost gold of Jacob Waltz. And so it was that in November of 2009, he took a month off from work, and he headed down to Arizona, and he checked into an Apache Junction, Arizona hotel, with the goal being that every weekend he would check back in to renew his supplies, and in the meantime, he would go out and look for this hidden treasure. We never checked back in. In fact, for three years, no one knew what happened to Jesse Capen. There's all kinds of speculation. Some speculated that other gold miners or other people who were hunting for the treasure had killed him. Some said that it was wild animals. And there were others who said that Jesse Capen faked his own disappearance so he could be more secretive or maybe because he'd found the treasure. Well, it turns out that none of those things were true. Three years later, his body was discovered. And after an investigation, they determined that he had fallen accidentally to his death. In fact, it was the very first night that he was hunting for the treasure, he had fallen to his death. I suppose there's lots of adjectives that we could use to describe that story, but the adjective I would use is just sad. It's a sad story. 
From all reports, Capon became so obsessed with the treasure that he'd become reclusive and secretive, not wanting anyone to know where he was headed for fear that they might steal the treasure from out underneath his feet. Even his own parents had no idea what he was up to until after he disappeared, which I suppose begs the obvious question, was it worth it? Was it worth withdrawing from everyone else socially in an effort to protect any future treasure? Was it worth setting aside everything in his life and making this pursuit of the lost Dutchman's gold mine his greatest priority? Was that worth it? Was it worth risking his life for a treasure that may or may not even exist? Well, the easy answer to all of those questions is no, right? At least from our outsider's perspective. But I think it's easy for us to say, given the results and given the radical nature of the story, that that was not a great decision. But here's the thing. If we really became convinced that we knew where the treasure was and no one else did, I would suspect that we might act differently too. In fact, put it this way. If you became 100% convinced that there was treasure buried in your backyard, I would guess that you may not be headed to work tomorrow. And by the end of the day tomorrow, in fact, maybe even by the end of the night tonight, there would probably be a lot of holes in your backyard. Because the fact of the matter is that when you become convinced that there is something of immeasurable value available to you, it changes you and it changes your behavior. But what if I were to tell you today that there is a treasure available to you even now that will dwarf anything that they ever find in the lost Dutchman's gold mine. And what if I were to tell you that not only is it available, you can access that treasure today? Well, I would guess that on the one hand, you'd be skeptical, right? And on the other hand, I would hope that you'd be interested. But here's the reality. What I told you is true. There is a treasure that is available to you today that is greater than any lost treasure anywhere. And the fact of the matter is that you can access that treasure even now. It's a treasure that the Thessalonians discovered 2,000 years ago. In fact, they weren't the first to discover it, but it's certainly a treasure that they came across and they received it for what it was, a true treasure. And it's the treasure that we read about today in 1 Thessalonians 2, the passage that Dan read just a minute ago. So let's read again here, 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. As always, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay, just listen along. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. And let me remind you, this is the Word of God. Verse 13 says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now, this is only four verses, but there is a lot going on in these four verses. There's talk of the Thessalonians suffering for the sake of the gospel. There's talk of the Thessalonians imitating other churches. There's this whole thing at the end about the Jews in verses 15 and 16. But undoubtedly, the key to this passage, and if you were to trace the argument of this passage, it starts in verse 13. Everything else flows from verse 13. Verse 13 is the key to understanding this passage. Let me read it again. Verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So here's the main thing that's happening in this passage. Paul is thanking God 
that the Thessalonians received the word of God for what it really is, the word of God. Now, this is quite a claim that Paul is making. He's making a claim on apostolic authority that what he's speaking is the word of God. And certainly there's some significance in that for us. But that issue aside, I think the question that we need to ask ourselves today is simply this. Do we receive the word of God for what it really is, the word of God? Of course, in our context, when we talk about the word of God, we are primarily talking about this book, the Bible. And so the question is, do we receive this book for what it really is, the word of God? When I was 12 years old, as part of the church tradition that I grew up in, I was, I was uh, made a church member. The confirmation process, I guess, is what it was called. Now, for the record, I don't think that's a biblical practice. I think the church members should be genuine believers. But at the church I grew up in, this is the way it worked. When you turned 12 or 13, you went through this process where you became a member of the church. And as part of that process, when you finished, what you got as a gift was the Bible. Now, I'm sure I had access to the Bible before that. But when I received this Bible when I was 12 or 13, that's the first Bible I ever remember owning. And there were times in my middle school and high school years where I remember thinking, well, if I'm a church member, I should try to read the Bible occasionally. So I'd pick up the Bible, and I would start to read it. And I just have to be honest in saying this, that I found the Bible to be particularly boring. I found that it was, at least in my opinion at the time, I felt like it was disconnected and it was out of date. I felt like I just didn't understand the stories. I didn't understand how they related to my life. I didn't see how they could have any impact on a middle school or high school student in the state of Iowa in whatever year that was. For me, at that time, the Bible was nothing more than an old book with old stories. And so for the next several years, that book did nothing more than collect dust on my bookshelf. It was an old book with old stories that were out of date. But here's my question for you today. Is that how you see the Bible? Is it just an old book with old stories that's out of date? It's certainly the way that our culture sees the Bible. This last Sunday, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences held its annual award shows for musical achievement, better known as the Grammys. And predictably, as has been the case often with musical award shows recently, it created quite a stir. And although I didn't watch the show, if for no other reason that I don't really particularly enjoy watching award shows, I've certainly seen quite a few headlines this week about the Grammys. And it seems that the most talked about event that happened in this particular Grammys this last Sunday was rapper Macklemore and Ryan Lewis performing their gay rights anthem, Same Love. The performance, according to everything I read, included choirs, stained glass windows, and at the end, a wedding ceremony that happened live on the spot with 33 couples getting married at the Grammys, both gay and straight. The song Same Love, by the way, is nominated for one of the best songs this year. It's really more than anything a song about attitudes towards homosexuality, and at many points, it intersects religion with this idea of how we should respond to homosexuality. Now, instructive for us, and I think related to this passage today, is the attitude that song takes towards the Bible. Consider this one line that the song says. It says this, And God loves all his children is somehow forgotten. We paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. Now, there's much that could be said about that song. There's much that could be said about that line. For example, just taking that line alone, I think there's several things. And by the way, I think it's helpful for us to step back every now and then and look at what our culture is saying and then run it through the lens of what the Bible actually says. So when this song talks about loving all of God's children, I think that that song is probably defining children of God in a different way than the Bible does. John 1 says, Yet to all who believed him, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's those who've trusted in Christ. So that's one area that that song might differ. I think also it's probably a bit misleading to say that as it relates to the issue of homosexuality, that people need to paraphrase the Bible. 
think the Bible speaks to it fairly directly. But most notable for us and most relevant to the passage today is the general tone that is taken in that song towards the Bible. And the reason why I think it's relevant and worth bringing up is because I think this is how much of our culture approaches the Bible now. It's a book that was written thousands of years ago. Really, the clear implication in that song is that we should just love one another and that we should forget about what the Bible says because the Bible is old and out of date and doesn't have any relevance to modern culture. And listen, that way of thinking actually kind of makes sense, right? It kind of makes sense if you just think that the Bible is a really old book. After all, how could a book that was written so many years ago actually have relevance for our modern culture? So that line of thinking makes sense unless, unless the Bible really is the Word of God. Unless this is really God's Word spoken. And if it is, then that changes everything. Because that means that this book is not out of date and irrelevant. It means that these are the very words of God. And as such, it has relevance for every person today. Let me be clear here and put my cards on the table. And hopefully this is not a surprise to any of you. And hopefully you are encouraged by this. But I believe with all of my heart that this book is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Now, let me say this. I think that we need to be careful to define what we mean by the Word of God. This is a book that was written by 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years. Now, the fact that it was written by 40 different authors over a period of around 15 or 1,600 years, I think is actually evidence that the ultimate author of Scripture is God. How else do you explain that 40 people over 1,500 years could write one book with one message and one coherent thought that Jesus Christ rescues? How do you explain that unless God is the ultimate author of Scripture? The Bible is written in such a way that the men writing the books were able to write exactly what they wanted to write. And at the same time, God was able to communicate exactly what he wanted to communicate. The book of 2 Peter documents the process well. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says this, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, men wrote the books of the Bible, but they were inspired by God. And as such, it is safe for us to say that the Bible is the Word of God and that the ultimate author of Scripture is God. But listen, this is not just my opinion. This is the testimony of Scripture itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed, or breathed out by God, some translations say, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And if that's true, that all of Scripture is God-breathed, then again, I would argue that changes everything. Because this is the Word of God. And as such, because God is infinite and eternal, He is able to speak in a way that speaks to people of all generations, in all cultures, in all nations, in all languages. Hebrews 4.12 says it this way, The Word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword, able to penetrate even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And because it's the Word of God, and because it's living and active, because of that we can say that it is a treasure of immeasurable worth. Psalm 19, verses 9 and 10 says this, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. A similar line, Psalm 119.72 says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 
It was recently reported, I think in a New York newspaper, that Bill Clinton made $500,000 for a 45-minute speech that he gave in Israel. Actually, on another occasion, he was uh, paid $750,000 for a speech he gave to a telecom company in Hong Kong. It's estimated that since he left the presidency, Bill Clinton has made over $89 million just through giving public speeches. Now, I don't doubt that Bill Clinton is a gifted public speaker. In fact, I've heard him speak, and I think he is a gifted communicator. But if that's how much value Bill Clinton's words have, how much greater value is the word of God? After all, he is God. This is his word. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the king. He is the sovereign ruler. He is the judge, the holy and righteous one, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. He is the perfect one. And his words should be more valuable to us than gold and silver. And in theory, I would guess that most of you would agree that that is true. Maybe not all, but I would guess that most of you would agree in theory. Yeah, that's true. The word of God is of great value. But let me ask you this. Practically speaking, do you live like you believe that the word of God is a treasure of immeasurable value? Do you operate in your life on a day-to-day basis like you really believe that this book is the word of God? Do you live like you believe that this is more valuable than gold or silver? Because here's the thing. If we really believe that these words are the word of God, then that changes everything. And that's one of the things that we see in the book of 1 Thessalonians. The Thessalonians received the word of God for what it really was, the word of God, and that changed them. Look again at the passage. Look again at verses 13 through 16. So I want you to notice the flow of the argument here. The flow of the argument is that they received the word of God and that changed them. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Then it says this, which is at work in you believers. Then verse 14 is an explanation of how is it work. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now let me pause for a second. Then he kind of goes on this tangent about the Jews. Now some have said that this is an anti-Semitic passage. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, if you read the totality of Paul's writings about the Jews, it's obvious that he loved the Jewish people. In Romans 9, he says that he wished that he could be accursed if it meant that the Jewish people would come to see that Christ is the Savior. I think what he's rather doing in verses 15 and 16 is just speaking about those who opposed the gospel. He's given an example of how that happened. Verse 15, he says this, "...who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind." by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now hopefully you can see or you can trace the flow of the argument. Right? Verse 13, they received the word of God for what it really was, the word of God. And the word of God is at work in them. And one of the ways it's at work is that they were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That they accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were willing to suffer because of it. That's the whole point of verses 13 through 16. And he goes on this tangent at the end, but the point is that they receive the word of God and it changed them. And listen, that is the thing about God's word. It's not just something to be admired or to be talked about. It's something that ought to be at work in us. It's living and active. And it should change the way we live. In the Thessalonians case, this is the way it worked itself out. They received it as the word of God and then they were willing to suffer in order to make sure that that message advanced. And listen, if they really believed it was the word of God, then why wouldn't they suffer? 
Right? If they really believed deep down that this was God's word, then of course it makes sense that they would be willing to suffer. Because the word of God had changed them. But let me suggest something. If the word of God really is the word of God, then it should change us too. And it should have an impact on us as well. I'll say this first, that if the word of God is the word of God, it should change how we approach the word. Again, to use our original analogy, if I told you with 100% certainty that there was $10 million buried in your backyard, would you go and dig it up? My guess is, yes, you would, right? But what if I told you that you'd have to dig 20 feet and it'd be hard work and there might be rocky soil? Would you still dig it up? I would guess, yes, you would, right? And what if I told you, well, you'll have to be disciplined because you have a certain amount of time to accomplish this. Would you be willing to do it then? And I would guess, again, the answer is yes. But here's the thing. If the word of God is really more valuable than any treasure, and by the way, when Psalm says that, I don't think it's speaking in hyperbole. For example, money may make life better, but the words of God bring life, eternal life. And in the end, eternal life is far better than anything that money can buy. So I think that Psalms is correct in saying that the word of God is more valuable than gold or silver. But here's the question. If the word of God really is that valuable, then maybe shouldn't we think about approaching it a little bit differently? In the same way that if we knew that there was treasure buried in the backyard, we would go and do everything we could to get at that treasure. I wonder if we really believe that the word of God is that valuable, then maybe our approach to it should be a little bit different. All too often, and I'm including myself in this, our approach towards the Word of God is all too cavalier. The way we typically think about the Bible is something like this. If we have time to read the Bible this week, great. If not, that's no big deal. But here's my question. Would you ever approach anything else important like that? Would you ever say, you know, if I have time to eat this week, I will, but if not, no big deal. Or would you ever say to yourself, you know, if I have time to take a shower this week, I will, but if not, no big deal. Now, as a completely parenthetical side note, I've had some junior high boys when I was a youth pastor who attempted that ploy. They thought, oh yeah, we're on a mission trip. We just won't take a shower. We just don't have time for it. And I'll just say the results were catastrophic, right? But I'm guessing that most of you don't take that approach. And hopefully you consider things like personal hygiene and food to be of importance. But if we take that attitude towards important things like personal hygiene or food, why wouldn't we take that same approach to the word of God? It's more valuable than gold or silver. Now, I would contend that maybe the reason why we aren't as committed to the Word of God is because, quite frankly, we don't see it as that important. But consider what Jesus says in Matthew 4, verse 4. And by the way, uh, there's, there's a lot of verses that I'm kind of referencing today, and I, hopefully, I think, and check the bulletin beforehand, but usually every week we print those, bulletin, or those verses in the bulletin. So if you want to consult those later, feel free to not have to turn because you'll be doing a lot of Bible turning here. But in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says this, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. With one of the implications being there, I think that yes, food is important, but so is the word of God. Now, as always, I want to be clear here. You are not saved, or in other words, you're not made right with God because you read the Bible. I've heard plenty of sermons over the years where it feels like the pastor is just guilting you into reading the Bible. Or it feels like he's making you feel like the worst person ever if you don't read the Bible on a regular basis. But I want to kind of pop that bubble by saying this. It's entirely possible that you could be the most devoted Bible reader in this entire room and still be missing the entire point of Scripture. In John 5, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. With the obvious implication being that the point of Scripture is Jesus. And you can search the Scriptures all that you want. But if you miss that Jesus is the point, then you're missing the entire point of Scripture. Hopefully I've made this clear from the time I've been here. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. From the beginning of time, Jesus has always been the plan. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's always been about Jesus. Because he is the only one who can rescue people from their sins. And that has always been the plan. And to read Scripture and to miss that is to miss the entire point of Scripture. So if we talk about reading the Bible or we talk about treasuring the Word of God and we fail to mention that it's about what Jesus has done, then we are wasting our time. The reason why every Sunday we gather together to hear the Word spoken is because we know that this Word has the words of life, that it points us to Jesus Christ. And so listen, the goal is not just to gather to hear the Word. The goal is to gather and hear the Word and see that it's pointing us to Christ and see that it's pointing us to the life found in Christ. And so I'll say this, if you're here today and you have never turned to Christ, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, I would implore you to recognize that you are a sinner and your sin has separated you from God, but there is hope to be found in Jesus Christ. That is the point of Scripture. And that is the reason why Scripture is so valuable, because it points to Jesus. The reason why we treasure the Word of God is because we know that Jesus was the Word made flesh. Listen, don't read your Bible because I tell you to. Read your Bible because there is untold treasure in this book. Because we can discover more about this God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. So that we can understand that that love should implore us to love others. It should inspire us to live differently. Read the Bible because it points to life. It's a treasure. And let me just contend that we should approach it that way. Let's stop talking about the Bible like it's some old, out-of-date religious book. Instead, let's start talking about the Bible like it's a treasure to be uncovered. And let's start living on a week-to-week basis like we really believe that there is treasure in here that is greater than any pieces of gold and silver. Because it's true. It's true. This is a book that speaks the very words of God. Which leads to the other thing I would say. The fact that the Word of God is the Word of God should change the way we approach the words in this book. Consider this. If this is the Word of God, then everything in here, you can take it to the bank. It's true. If the Bible tells us to believe in Jesus Christ in order that we can be saved, which it does in Acts 16.31, then you can rest assured if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you place your trust in Him, and that's evidenced by your repentance, you can rest assured that you are saved. On the other side of the coin, if the Bible says that those who do not know him will be punished with everlasting vengeance, which it says in 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians 1:8, well, that's true too. If you're a believer and you read that the Bible says that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, Romans 8:1, then you can know this: that no matter what you have done or what you will do, there is no condemnation. If the Bible says to those who are believers that God is working for our good in all things, which he does in Romans 8.28, that no matter how hard life may seem, no matter how many difficult things may come your way, you can know this as a believer of Christ, that he really is working for your good because the Bible says so. If the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to the Father, which it does in John 14.6, then take it to the bank. Jesus is the only way. If the Bible says as children that he will never leave us or forsake us, 
Hebrews 13.5 says that, then rest assured, no matter how lonely you are today, no matter how much you feel like you've been neglected, no matter how much you feel like maybe God doesn't love you, if you are a believer in Christ, know this, he has not left you and he has not forsaken you. If the Bible says that one day Jesus Christ will return, as it does throughout the Bible, and particularly in the book of 1 Thessalonians, know this, one day Jesus Christ is coming again. If the Bible says in Revelation 21, that one day for those who are in Christ, there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, then you can look forward to that day, not with a guarded optimism, but with the steel-like certainty. It's going to happen. I wonder if sometimes the reason why some of these promises have lost their luster, or in other words, why some of these promises don't encourage us like they ought to, is because we've lost sight of the fact that this really is the Word of God. Now listen, we have to be careful always to take the Word of God in its context. There's always a danger that we can just rip verses out of thin air and not really talk about the context around them. And hopefully all of those verses I just quoted, I quoted them in the context. They were faithful to what the passage was saying. But if we understand the scriptures correctly and we're interpreting them in the context that they're spoken, then you can take these words to the bank. And I wonder if maybe the reason we've lost our encouragement about the promises of God is because we've stopped believing that this really is the word of God. But know this, this is the word of God. This is what we stand on. There's nowhere else to go. These are his words. And if the Bible really is the word of God, then we can't just pick or choose what we want to do or what we want to believe. After all, he's God. And if he says that something's sin, it's sin. If he says there's only one way, there's only one way. And if he says that that way is Jesus, then Jesus is the way. And if he says to us who are believers that he's working for our good, he is working for our good. You can believe this word. Listen, the words of men come and go. And we may choose to dismiss or heed those words, but the word of God will stand forever. And if you believe that to be true, that is going to change the way you look at the word of God. And I would say, in response to that, the word of God will start to change you. That's what separated the Thessalonians. They recognized that the message Paul was speaking were not just the words of men, it was the word of God. They recognized the word of God as being the word of God. And because they saw that, they were willing to put up with untold persecution and difficulty. But listen, that's kind of the way it works when you find treasure, right? Everything else becomes less important in comparison. Contrary to popular opinion, the Bible is not a book that is out of date or irrelevant. It is, and it always will be, the Word of God. And as such, it's a treasure that is greater than any treasure that you will ever find hidden in your backyard, or for that matter, the foothills of Arizona. So let's treat it that way. Let's treat it like it's a treasure that is greater than gold or silver. Let's stand on the Word of God regardless of what anyone else says, because we believe that this is a treasure worth fighting for. And let's never forget that ultimately the reason why it is such a great treasure is because it's pointing us to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. The scriptures testify about Jesus. They testify about the fact that God rescues us through his son. I just want you to know that is a treasure worth giving your life to. Let's pray. Father, we think of all of these great scriptures that we read about today. Think of 2 Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We think of Hebrews 4.12.
Scripture is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Think of John 5 where Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have life. And yet it is they that bear witness about me. Come to me that you may have life. Father, we're praying that as we think and we meditate on those words, that we would believe that they are true, that your word really is your word. And that all scripture is breathed out by you. And as such, the word of God is living and active. Father, we pray that we would treasure your word because ultimately we know that it points us to the hope found in Christ. And we pray that we would search for this treasure, that we would dig up the treasure, that we would value the treasure, that even this week, that we would look to your word and that we would see that it's a treasure better than gold or silver. And that we would live like these words really are your words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.